words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah in the second chapter and the eighth verse. The eighth verse in the second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. The priests said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. The priests said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. We come back once more to this extraordinary statement that we find here in this second chapter of the book of this prophet Jeremiah. It's a description, as I've been pointing out on previous Sunday evenings, of the condition of Israel at a time and at a juncture in their history when things had reached almost their very lowest ebb. There had been a terrible declension in a religious sense, in a moral sense, and even in a military sense. And here they are, threatened by the attack of the Chaldeans, threatened with the destruction of their country, and they're being carried away into captivity. The position, in other words, could not have been worse than it was at this particular point in the story. But here God sends a prophet. He'd already sent the many prophets. Here he sends this prophet Jeremiah, the last of a long succession to give them a final warning, ere it is too late. And here is the message which the prophet was given by God to deliver to this recalcitrant and rebellious people. The essence of his message is this, that they were as they were, in trouble and in distress, and worse things were threatening them, for one reason only, and that was their departure from the living God. You remember he begins bringing that out in the fifth verse. Thus saith the Lord, what iniquity of your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me. They turned deliberately from God. They were ignoring altogether what he had done for them in that glorious deliverance from the captivity and the bondage of Egypt. They'd forgotten all about it. They were not interested. Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt and led us through the wilderness? They were not saying that. They'd forgotten all about it. The most glorious thing in their history meant nothing to them. And in the same way, they were completely unable to appreciate and to realize the wonderful salvation that God had given them. I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when he entered in, he defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. Now that is what he's been telling them so far. In other words, their troubles were entirely due to just that, that they failed to realize what it is to be God's people. They failed to realize God's glorious salvation. They failed to realize the benefits of that salvation which God had given to them so freely and so fully. 
Well, now, I'm calling attention to all this because, as I'm suggesting, it seems to me to present such a perfect picture of the present state and condition of mankind at this very moment. Our world is troubled. Our world is unhappy. Terrible things have already happened. It looks as if worse things are going to happen. What's the matter with us? What's the matter with the entire human race? What's gone wrong? What can be done about it? Well, here's the answer. You see, there's nothing new in our situation. It's a very old situation. The Bible is full of uh, stories and descriptions of like and similar uh, situations uh, throughout the centuries. And it's always the same trouble. The trouble is always that men and women will worship any sort of God and turn in any direction except to God himself. You know the greatest trouble in the world tonight is not the trouble that is being produced by certain statesmen or by certain countries. It's not what's happening on the different sides of these so-called curtains. That's not the real trouble. The real trouble is that the whole race of mankind is turning away from God. And that the greatest thing that God has ever done for this world is not even being considered. What's that? Well, he sent his only son into the world. He sent his only begotten beloved son into this world as a man in order to save and to rescue and to redeem. But the world doesn't pay the slightest attention to it. It's not interested in it. Interested in everything else. Christ, just an expletive, an oath. A curse. The blood of Christ, something ridiculous, monstrous. Isn't that true? And likewise with the great salvation that God offers us, it's here to be seen in the New Testament. People don't know what it is. They're not interested. It's offered them, they reject it. They think they know a better way and can make a better life for themselves. That's why I'm calling attention to it. The world today is repeating this unutterable folly of the children of Israel. And that's the argument deployed by the prophet. He says the thing is irrational, it's unreasonable, it's mad. How can you be doing such a thing? So he goes on pleading with them and urging with them to realize the position. But now then, uh, here we come to another statement in this eighth verse. The priests said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Here's a further explanation. Why were these children of Israel as they were? Well, the answer is that their leaders were as they were. Like people, like leaders. The people follow the leaders. And here the prophet goes on to show how it was the priests and the pastors, which means the princes and the prophets who were mainly responsible for the state of the people. In other words, the people were turning away from God and ignoring his great act of salvation and despising the good land into which he'd brought them because of the misrepresentation of the truth concerning God. And that misrepresentation had in turn led to confusion. Now that's the subject that is before us tonight. I want at this point to make a very personal statement. I don't often make this kind of statement. I feel constrained to make it at this moment. I have to perform this evening what is to me a most distasteful task. 
I would much prefer not to do it. Well, why am I doing it? Well, I'll tell you why. Let me put it in the form of a question. Why do you think I'm preaching on this second chapter of this book of the prophet Jeremiah? Here's the fifth Sunday night we've been looking at this chapter. Why am I doing so? You know, my friends, there's only one reason for that. I tell you the thing in the presence of God. And God sees and knows my heart and yours, and he knows all about us. I have only one reason for calling attention to this particular chapter, that I verily believe that God has called me to do so. I don't know whether you know anything about preaching and about preparing sermons. I stand in this pulpit generally some 42 or 43 Sundays every year and preach twice every Sunday. And you know there are times when I have to find my own texts, as it were. Or I expound through a book of the scriptures, and that is a part of my calling. I'm being called to expound and to teach the scriptures. But you know there are times when something remarkable happens. When a man just finds that he is given a message, he hasn't been seeking it, but it's given to him. And I am here tonight and I'm preaching on this eighth verse in this second chapter of Jeremiah because this was given to me. Not only this verse, the whole thing was given to me. You know, sometimes a man has to work very hard to find a sermon. I want to tell you that I have received all the sermons I've preached hitherto on this chapter as a gift from God. I've never had less work to do. They were opened out before me. In other words... I'm preaching on this verse because I dare not preach, because I dare not refuse to preach on it. I am conscious of this sense of compulsion. Now, I'm saying this by way of personal explanation. It's a very distasteful thing. I confess that I'm weak enough and fallible and sinful enough to wish uh, in a way that uh, I wasn't doing what I'm going to do tonight. But you see, that's not the business of a preacher. He is not to do what he wants to do or what he likes to do. He is to do what God calls upon him to do. I've got one great comfort. Jeremiah himself felt exactly as I feel. Listen to him in the 15th chapter saying this in verse 10. Woe is me, my mother, that thou hast borne me, a man of strife and of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent on usury nor men have lent to me on usury, yet every one of them doth curse me. And he repeats it again in the 20th chapter in the 10th verse. Let me read that to you. For I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side. Report, they say, and we will report it. All my familiars watched for my halting, saying, Peradventure he will be enticed, and we shall prevail against him, and we shall take our revenge on him. Jeremiah didn't want to preach the message that God had given to him. Indeed, he tells us in that 15th chapter that he decided not to speak anymore. He said, the more I speak, the more I get into trouble. Everybody's against me. I seem to be a lone vice, and I'm in great trouble. I wish at times that I'd never been born at all. Why should I have to be saying something unpalatable and unpresent while everybody else is saying something that is quite different? He decided he'd never speak again. 
But he said the word of God began to burn as a fire in his bones, and he had to speak. Well, I'm not comparing myself with Jeremiah, I'm not foolish enough to do so. But in a very, very small way, I think I understand more than I've ever done before of something of what these men felt. I say I'm called to an unpleasant and to a distasteful task. What is it? Well, let me expound it to you in terms of this situation that confronted the prophet Jeremiah. This is what he said. That the condition of the children of Israel was very largely due to the fact that they're very priests and princes and prophets were not fulfilling their function as they should have been. And the people were muddled and confused as a result of it. Now, this was the terrible thing. These priests and princes and prophets were still holding the offices. They were still calling themselves by these names that God had originally given to the priests, the princes and the prophets. They were using the offices, they were using the titles, they were using the very terms and expressions. But they were actually teaching something and doing something that was the exact opposite of God's will and God's revelation. That is the condition that the prophet here is describing. You see, the priests were meant to lead people to God. But the priests were not saying, where is the Lord? They'd been called to do that. They were the representatives of God. They were the people who had to teach the officers that had to teach the people that they sinned against God and that therefore they must take their offerings and their sacrifices to God that their sins may be covered. That was their office, an office appointed by God, an office ordained by God. You read the account of it there back in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and all that. It's there in great detail. God had appointed a priesthood so that the people might be kept in touch with him. It was their special function. And they had a secondary function, which was to handle the law. This is descriptive, you see, of the priests. The first two statements apply to the priests. They say not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. They were not doing that. Then the princes, who are called here pastors, the shepherds and the guides of the people, God had ordained these in order that they might uh, govern over the people, that they might administer the law, and that they might be a pattern and an example to the nation and to the people as to how they should live a God-fearing life and a God-honoring life. That was the meaning of the pastoral office, as it were, of the princes. God had appointed them again. It was God's ordination. And that is why he gave these men this great honor, that they might stand out as patterns and examples to the people. And in turn, the prophets. The business of the prophets was to be constantly watching the condition of the nation and reminding people of the spiritual character of the law and the exact meaning of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. These were to be the kind of seers, the men who rarely had understanding and who were to be constantly calling the people back to God and to his law and to his righteous holy ways. But you see what the prophet is compelled to say about them is this. That they were not doing that. Well, what were they doing? Well, he says this is what they were doing. They were turning their backs upon God. They were not asking, where is the Lord? 
They turned their backs on God. And on what he'd done, and on what he had revealed. They that handled the law knew me not. You see, their office was to handle it, to expound it, and to teach it. That's what the handling means. Handling the word of God. But they were not doing that. They were doing it in name. They were pretending to do it still. But they were actually not doing it. They don't know me, says God. They've departed from me. Though they're still in the office and call themselves priests, they're not fulfilling the functions of the priesthood. They're doing something very different. They're not bringing people to me. They've got their backs to me and they're sending the people in another direction. Both in their handling of the sacrifices and in their handling of the law. That was the first thing of which they were guilty, that they had turned their backs upon God and upon God's law and his revelation of himself. And instead of looking to God and seeking him and expounding, they were, what? Well, trusting their own minds, trusting their own thoughts, and trusting their own understandings. They'd made a new religion, which appealed to them and which they liked, and they were teaching it to the people. Not God's, but theirs. They were the authors of what they were teaching. Their own understanding, their own reason, their own thought. Indeed, it was even worse than that. They were teaching false doctrines. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Instead of prophesying in the name of the Lord, they were prophesying in the name of this no-God Baal, this mere figment of men's imagination. This mere creation of human ingenuity, Baal, and all he stands for. Idols, things that do not profit, the vanity of which we were treating in the fifth verse, where he said, What iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and have become vain? That's what they were doing. And the result of all this, of course, the turning their backs upon God, trusting their own minds, preaching the false doctrines of Baal, was that in conduct and practice and behavior, they and the princes and all the people were guilty of terrible sin and iniquity against God. And God sends this prophet Jeremiah to them to tell them that if they continue along that line, that there is only one thing awaiting them, and that is doom and disaster. That was his message. Perfectly plain, perfectly clear. Now, my friends, I say, what am I doing here tonight? Well, alas, unfortunately, I've got to repeat this message. Why, are the vast, why is the vast majority of people in this country today outside the church? Why is it true to say that only 10% of the people of this country even claim to be Christian? That's the fact, isn't it? You're aware of that. Ninety percent of the people of this country don't even claim to be nominally Christian, not even interested. Why is that? I'm here to suggest that the explanation is still the same. That the people are utterly confused as to what Christianity is. As to what it means. As to what it's about. There is utter confusion as to what really Christianity stands for and teaching. And what is the cause of the confusion? Here's the difficulty. It is because the priests and the pastors and the prophets have misled the people. 
This has been going on for a hundred years and more. And the confusion of today is due to precisely the same cause as it was in the tragic days of Jeremiah. What is the position? Let me put it like this, as simply as I can. The titles are still being used. The offices are still being occupied. Preachers, pastors, bishops, clergymen, call them what you like. The titles are still being used. The titles that are found in the New Testament, the titles that have been used in the glorious ages of the Christian church, they're still being used as they were being used in the time of Jeremiah. Not only that, the same terminology is being used, the same language is being used. Christ is still being used as a term. Salvation is still being used. Christianity is still being talked about. Yes. But when you come to inquire as to the content put into the terms, you will find that it is often something entirely different and indeed violently opposed to that of the original meaning given in the New Testament itself. The original meaning has been evacuated and another meaning has been introduced and insinuated. Now I'm dealing with this for one reason only. I say that there are men and women who are not Christians tonight for this reason. They're outside the church. They're not even listening. Why? Well, because they say, I know what Christianity is. I heard so-and-so saying this. Or I read in the newspaper that so-and-so said that. And they name church dignitaries. And they're no longer interested in Christianity. I verily believe that this is the real explanation of why things as they are, not only in the Christian church, but in the country tonight. This is why we are seeing this moral declension. This is why this moral problem is alarmingly increasing. It isn't very safe any longer for a woman to go about alone in London, is it? You're aware of all these things. There's a decline, my friends. Things are going down from bad to worse. What's the matter? I say, this is the matter. What does it mean, says somebody? Well, I'll tell you. Let me divide it up as I've divided up the uh, prophet Jeremiah's analysis of his own contemporaries. You know, it's exactly the same thing being repeated. What has happened? Well, I'll tell you what's happened. The Bible is no longer the standard by which people operate. They've put this aside. The Bible is no longer the authority. It's no longer regarded as God's word. They say the Bible's a book like any other book. I say the church has been teaching this. That's the, that's the serious matter. I'm not going to detain you tonight with anything about the princes, the statesmen and the philosophers. I could say a great deal there. I'm not going to say so. But you see, as we read the biographies of great statesmen and so on, well, we see that they were undermining very often in their personal lives every notion of morality and justice and truth. Whatever they might have said in their speeches, they've lowered the whole moral tone and level. And it isn't confined only to statesmen. And philosophers, who should be the seers, the teachers of the people, the people who should guide us to an understanding of life, what is the truth concerning them? 
Most of them, not all of them, but most of them are infidels and atheists and skeptics. And their view of morality, some of them is this. They don't really believe in marriage, and some of them who do believe, believe you should have an experimental marriage first. They teach that openly. They don't pretend that there's anything wrong, they say. It's eminently common sense. We must wake up, they say. So you have an experimental marriage first. The sanctities are going, and these are some of the men who are most responsible for that. Well, I don't want to stay with them, the statesmen and the philosophers. I'm rather concentrating on this other aspect. Now I say that the Bible and the Word of God is no longer the standard and the authority. People do not ask, where is the Lord? No, no, they begin to speak. And in, in what terms do they speak? Well, modern thought. Modern thought and knowledge. Philosophy. What does philosophy teach? Here's the authority. They say, of course, we don't any longer believe what you find in the Old Testament and so on. No, no, a modern thought, modern science. Reason, man's understanding, these are the tests, these are the standards, these are the things that come first. As it was in the time of Jeremiah, they've turned their backs upon God and they say, no, this is what we think. This is what we say. This is what modern thought has led us to believe. This is really the modern view of these matters. This is the kind of truth that's needed in this atomic age, in this post-war age that we are in. Now then, this is it. And they tell you the ideas of men. We are given the teachings that emanate from human reason and thought and understanding and nothing beyond that. And what are the results? Well, the results, you see, are endless. It works out like this. That there has been a complete change in the seat of authority. The authority is no longer God and his word. The authority is man and his reason. His knowledge, his understanding. You see, they're saying this increasingly. There are men who say that they now understand what is supposed to have happened at the resurrection. Why? Well, you see, the latest uh, discoveries of the uh, committee of the churches, which is to investigate psychic phenomena, enables us now to understand. Of course, we're very lucky we're alive now. If we'd been alive at any time before this, we couldn't have believed in the resurrection. But now we can. And you see the miracles reported in the Old Testament and the New. Ah, oh, well, now strange things happen. You know, I think I've quoted you before. The man who wrote a book, I think, bearing the title, The Bible is True, or something like that. He says now he can believe, you know, that when Moses struck the rock, the water came out. Why? Well, during the last war, he says, a sergeant had a group of men and these men were supposed to be digging in the neighborhood of a rock. And accidentally, uh, the pickaxe of one of the men just happened to strike a rock and some water trickled down. So he can believe the miracle now. But you see, how lucky he is that he lives now. If he'd lived before the war, he couldn't have believed in miracles. But now, well, of course, we're beginning to understand. Now, these are but illustrations, you see, of how the whole seat of authority has changed. Man's reason is supreme. We only believe what we can understand, nothing else. And, of course, this has drastic results and consequences. Their whole view of God is different. They say quite openly in the name of the Christian church that they don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. Ah, oh, they say that was a tribal God. Do you know that there's a man... In America, with the title of bishop and a very prominent man in the World Council of Churches, who says that he regards the God of the Old Testament as being largely a bully. Now, I'm not inventing these things. 
I am telling you things that can be seen in print. A bully. This is said in the name of the church, in the name of Christianity. God of the Old Testament, he is nothing but a tribal God sitting in his anger on top of a Mount Sinai. They say they don't believe in him. They have no use for such a God. They believe, they say, in the God of Jesus. And this God of the Old Testament they reject. Of course, they conveniently seem to forget the fact that the Jesus whom they claim to have as their authority believed in the God of the Old Testament. And said so quite plainly. And said that the scriptures could not be broken. But you see, it affects their whole view of God. Why? Well, they don't like a God who is a just God. They say that God of the Old Testament talks about being a jealous God and a God of wrath. He says he's going to punish. He gives a, a law and he tells people if they break it that he will punish them. They say, we cannot believe in such a God. And they don't believe in such a God. And they therefore create a God after their own imagining, a God that fits in with their reason and understanding and their sentimentality. And he's nothing but love and smiles benignly upon everybody. It, aff it affects their very belief in God himself. But the point I'm emphasizing is, this is said in the name of the Christian church. The priests, the prophets, the pastors, still holding the offices, still using the terms, have evacuated their meaning and interpolated their own meaning, even about the being of God himself. Is it surprising that the nation is as she is? Is it surprising that there is lawlessness and vice and immorality and confusion and discord? It's not a bit surprising. The people always are like the God whom they claim to worship. But not only does it affect their view of God, it affects the whole of their view of Old Testament history. See, they don't believe of a beginning when God created the world. No, no. They don't believe men started worshipping God. They believe in what they call comparative religion. And they believe that men started by worshipping, oh, spirits in trees and in stones, animism. And they gradually went up and believed in a multiplicity of gods, a sort of polytheism. And up and up they came until at last this one nation arrived at a belief in one god, monotheism. They said, that's what you've got. It's a development upward. You don't start with God and depart from him, as the Old Testament says. No, no, you gradually arrive at God. It's the exact opposite of what you're told in the Old Testament. And of course, in the same way, their view of men is entirely different. The Bible teaches that man is made in the image of God and that he's a moral and a responsible being. It says that he's different from all the animals. That God put something of his own nature into man and intended him to be the Lord of creation. But that's no longer believed. Man's just a reasoning animal. He's just evolved up out of the primitive slime. Man, no, he's nothing beyond an animal. The highest form of animal, of course. This part of the brain called the cerebrum has developed more in men than in other animals. Hence man, but he's essentially one with all the others. That's what they teach about men, you see. And they do it in the name of God and in the name of the Bible and in the name of the Christian church. And of course the people are listening to them. They say, after all, we're only animals. What's wrong then if we behave like animals? If we're only animals, well, why shouldn't our morals go back to the farmyard? And let's behave as the animals do in the farmyard. We're nothing but animals. Well, when what's all this nonsense about? And so, you see, they're accepting the teaching and they're putting it into practice. 
And of course it applies in the same way, this follows next, in their whole view of sin. They don't believe in such a thing as sin. They don't like it. In the name of Christianity, they tell people not to believe that they're sinners. They say, it's all nonsense. It's bad psychologically for you. It will make you have a poor opinion of yourself. It will only depress you. No, no, they say, what you've got to do is to believe in yourself and to trust yourself and to express yourself. They're teaching people that in the name of Christianity. They say, don't listen to their term sin. That's been the thing that has troubled the human race. It's created psychological problems, they say. It accounted for most of the misery in the past and made people psychologically sick. That's what they say, you know, but the actual facts are, of course, that there was much less psychological sickness when people did believe in sin than there is now. It is now that the psychological illnesses are on the increase. As men have ceased to know himself as a creature of God and as he has lost the category of sin. But they don't believe in sin. Oh, it's the same with everything. They don't believe in prophecy. The Bible says that 800 years before the time, the prophet Isaiah and others prophesied the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Said where he was going to be born, even in this little town of Bethlehem, and gave many details about it. They don't believe in foretelling. They say it's impossible. Why? Well, they don't believe in the supernatural, really. You see, a man can't foretell the future, so they knock out the whole of prophecy. But still more serious. I don't want to stay with these unpleasant and unsavory details, but I'm trying to show you why the people are outside the church and why their souls are lost. They've been confused in the name of Christianity as to what Christianity is. And so I come to the question of our blessed Lord himself. Who is he? Well, in the name of Christianity, many of them don't believe in his virgin birth. Many of them don't believe in his unique deity. They say that he achieved divinity. That because he was such a good man, he as it was, became divine. And we can do the same if we only follow him. They don't believe that the only begotten Son of God, the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity, came out from heaven and took unto him human nature and was born of the virgin's womb. They reject it. He's only the greatest man, the greatest religious genius that the world has ever known. Of course, out go the miracles also. These were just the imaginations of people. They can explain them all, they think, quite easily. Turning water into wine was a joke. That poor man of Gadara, oh, he can easily be explained, they say, in terms of local circumstances with which they are familiar. Did you know that a man, an eminent, prominent man in the Christian church today wrote a book not long ago, and he actually said this. that of course he doesn't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. He said it's quite obvious as to who he was. He said, haven't you noticed in all the pictures he's always given fair hair? Why? Well, he was obviously an Aryan. How did he come to be an Aryan? Well, they say, you know, that at the time he was born, Rome had uh, captured and had conquered Palestine. And in the Roman army, there were legionaries from different parts of the world. And amongst the legionaries, there happened to be German legionaries. So at that time, there were a number of German soldiers serving in the Roman army, living in this conquered land of Palestine. And Jesus of Nazareth was the illegitimate son born to that girl Mary of this German soldier. Now, that is being taught 
in the name of Christianity and of the Christian church. That's the position, my friends. Is it surprising that people are not Christian? All you see that we are told here is rejected. It's dismissed. But they still call themselves Christians and preachers and pastors and professors in the Christian church. Much of his teaching is likewise dismissed and when you come to his death, they don't see the Son of God taking upon him the sins of men and bearing the punishment and dying for us. What they see is just a great tragedy. That he was too good for the world which didn't understand him. And that out of malice and spite and hatred they put him to death to get rid of him. Nothing more than that. Except that they may add that it was very wonderful the way in which he took it and said, in spite of your doing this to me, I tell you that God still loves you. No substitution. There was no meaning in all the burnt offerings and sacrifices of the Old Testament. John the Baptist didn't know what he was talking about when he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. Yeah, that was just Jewish nonsense he didn't understand. They know better by now. These things are not true. A theology of blood, they say. They ridicule it. No, no, that was the death of a martyr. And one who taught that God was love by taking it in the way that he did. The resurrection, of course, they just don't believe. They don't believe that he rose literally in the body from the grave on the morning of the third day. That's impossible to them. That's miraculous. So it's rejected. And, of course, if you tell them to believe that he's going to come again, riding the clouds of heaven to judge the world, they just explode with laughter. The thing they say is monstrous and ridiculous. They treat the writings of the apostles in exactly the same way. I was reading a sermon by a man the other day, a sermon, I'm saying, delivered in the Christian church, in which the man said that he was looking forward very much to having ten minutes with the apostle Paul when he got to heaven, that he'd got a few points on which he'd like to put him right. Oh, you say it's a joke. Well, but you know, I don't understand a man who in the name of Christ can joke about the apostle Paul. They don't accept the authority of the apostles. The Apostle Paul says that the Christian church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They say that they can put the apostles right, that they can correct them, that the apostles made many mistakes, and they are in the superior position of being able to tell them where they went wrong. They know more about Christ than Saul of Tarsus knew. The Apostle Paul knew. They don't hesitate to say so. And so they play fast and loose with the remainder of the teaching of the New Testament. And from all this it follows, of course, that their view as to what it means to be a Christian and how one becomes a Christian is in line. What is a Christian? A Christian is a man who lives a good life. A Christian is a man who does good. How does one become a Christian? Well, by doing good. You try to live as Jesus Christ lived. You try to carry out his precepts and practices. You try to sacrifice yourself and you try to be a philanthropist. You do that, they say, you do your best, it's all right. That makes you Christian. You make yourself a Christian by the life which you live. That's their teaching as to what it means to be a Christian and how you become a Christian. So, of course, the men of the world hearing all this says, well, then I needn't go to your place of worship. I can do all that outside. There are many excellent people doing it outside. They never go near a place of worship, but they're good men. They're moral men, and they do a tremendous lot of good. Very well, what you need the Christian church for at all. And logically, people say, there's no object in it, and we'll never attempt it. There's no purpose in it. 
And finally, of course, when you ask them what they teach about and believe about death and what may lie beyond it, what they tell you is this. There is no such place as hell, of course. There's no such condition as being in hell. That's impossible. That's not compatible with the love of God. Doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what you believe or not believe, everybody's going to be right at the end if they believe in a future life at all. They certainly don't believe in hell. They don't believe that a man's eternal destiny is decided in this life and in this world, not so much by what he does, but by what he believes primarily. That's rejected completely. We've got great John 3.16 saying, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. They've blotted it out. Nobody's going to perish. No punishment. No hell. No eternal retribution. Do what you like. It doesn't matter. If there is a future at all beyond death and the grave, it's going to be all right for everybody because God is love. Now, my friends, that is the popular teaching. I think you'll agree with me. But I'm here to say that it is all wrong. It is a lie. Ah, oh, says someone, but that just means that you are arrogant. You're standing up there and saying that you alone are right. You are conceited. Well, as it happens, thank God I'm not alone. There are many others who stand in the position that I stand but we are in a very small minority. Now I want to make that clear. We are in a minority, but we are, we are a number. I'm not standing alone, but let me put it like this. This isn't arrogance, this isn't conceit, and I'll tell you why. These things are not a matter of opinion. I don't stand in this pulpit to voice my opinions. My whole case depends upon the fact that I don't do that. Well, what are you doing, says someone? Well, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I am simply expounding, opening out, repeating the teaching of this book. I'm not saying the conclusions at which I've arrived. I am simply saying what I'm told here. And in doing that, I'm doing nothing original. I'm simply going back to the old authority the authority that was recognized in the church throughout the centuries, I'm doing nothing new at all. I'm simply doing what was done at the Protestant Reformation. Do you remember what the position was then? The Roman Catholic Church, you see, instead of preaching the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ, was preaching our own theories, preaching the Pope, preaching the Virgin Mary, preaching the saints and prayers to the saints, preaching a magical transubstantiation and saying that the body of Christ was literally in that bread and that you ate his body. And so that was they were preaching and the people were in darkness and sin was rampant over the nations. But then there came the great Protestant Reformation. And what brought it? Well, this is what brought it. At first there was just one man, Martin Luther. And what did he do? He went back to the Bible. He didn't sit down and work out a philosophy and say, well, now I disagree with them here and there and there. No, no. The poor man, miserable, unhappy, conscious of his sin, not knowing what to do and seeing the awful abuses in the church. He went back and read his Bible. And he made a tremendous discovery. He said, all that this church has been teaching for centuries and all that I was taught as I was trained is not the word of God. It's a lie. The Bible says justification by faith only. They say justification by the church. 
They say justification by sacraments. But this says justification by faith only. And the Reformation came out of that. It was nothing but a return to the Bible. It wasn't Luther's philosophy as against Roman Catholicism. It was a return to the word of God. And every great revival in the history of the church has been precisely the same thing. And that is all, my dear friends, that I'm trying to do with you this evening. And every other Sunday evening, I'm simply pleading with you along these lines. I say, come back and consider the book. What's your authority? Are you really content to base your eternal future upon what men think and say? A man says, I can't believe in a God of wrath. Are you prepared to risk your eternal destiny upon the fact that he can't accept it? Are you prepared to base your position upon philosophers? These men who are simply putting forward theories and who so often fail in practice, as I say, are you prepared to risk everything on just that word? I can scarcely believe it, but that is what people are doing. What do we need? We need, I say, to come back to this. We need an authority. We must begin to ask, where is the Lord? I'm tired of hearing about science and about philosophy. That's all but the result of man's mind and man's reason and man's understanding. And it isn't working. The world is as it is because of that. It's breaking down. When will you come back and ask with me, where is the Lord? Isn't it about time we realized our own finiteness, our own failure, our own miserable fallibility? Isn't it about time, I ask, that we turn back to the living God? Isn't it about time we said men are failing us? in spite of all their boasting and their learning and their prophecies of a marvelous age that was to come as the result of knowledge. We are unhappy. We're in misery. Our world has gone mad. Everything's going wrong. Isn't it time we ceased from men and began to ask, where is the Lord? That's the first step. Repentance. Confession of sin. Confession of failure. Confession of futility. What then? Well, having turned back to him, here's the second step. Accepting his revelation of himself and his holy law and his way of salvation and rejecting your bells and everything else. That's the way back. Did you notice how the Apostle Paul put it there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? If any man, he said, willeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be made wise. What's he mean? He means this. He said, I know numbers of you people in Corinth regard me as a fool. I came amongst you in weakness, fear, and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom. You see, he hadn't discussed philosophy with them. He hadn't put up this theory and that, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and the schools. He hadn't displayed his great learning. He'd got it, but he hadn't used it. He said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And they said, this man Paul is hopeless. Doesn't seem to know any philosophy. He said his presence is weak, he's nothing to look at, and his speech is contemptible. Look at him. Ha, they said. Ah, says Paul, 
The wisdom of this world is folly in the sight of God. And if a man wants to be wise, let him become a fool as I am. Let him say, I determined not to know anything save Jesus Christ and him crucified. It means this, you see, that in the futility of this present hour, in our bewilderment and loss and shame, let us come back to God and let us listen to his word, his revelation. And this is what he'll tell you. That he made men and that he made him for himself. That man is a sinner and a fool. And that all his misery and unhappiness is due to his sin and his folly. God will tell you if you come back to this book that you'll never be blessed as long as you're disobeying God. That the way of the transgressor is hard. That God does punish and will punish and that you can think and say what you like but it won't make the slightest difference to God. And the world today is proving it. That's what he'll tell you. And he will tell you that if you persist in that cause that things will go from bad to worse. And that if you die in that condition you will go to eternal suffering and loss. He will tell you furthermore that there is to be a final judgment of this world and that a man's destiny is eternal. That's what he'll tell you. But he'll tell you this also. Thank God that though the world in its folly has sinned against him and rebelled against him and gone its own foolish way and though it deserves nothing but utter retribution and punishment and calamity that he so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into it. Jesus of Nazareth was the only begotten son of God, born of a virgin. The archangel said to Mary, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and cover thee. That holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God, the power of the highest, a miracle, a virgin birth, Son of God, taking human nature. That's what, why did he do it? Why did he come? Well, he came in order to deliver us. And he will tell you that that blessed Son of God who had never sinned at all went deliberately to the cross on Calvary and died. To bear your punishment and mine. His body was broken. His blood was shed for us. That we might be forgiven. That God might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. That God in his infinite wisdom has discovered the only way to reconcile his own love and justice. His mercy and his righteousness. And his own son has done it. The most glorious thing the world has ever known or ever will know. That God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. And that if you and I come just as we are without waiting a moment. 
and acknowledge and confess our sin and shame and believe this message concerning the Son of God and His dying for us, we shall be immediately forgiven. We shall be given a new life, shall become new creatures, shall be made Christians by the power of the Holy Spirit in a new birth shall go on living as new men and women and shall be ushered into the presence of God, perfect and holy, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's it. That's Christianity. And that alone is Christianity. I'm not hesitating to say it. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ, the one foretold, the one who came, the one who's risen, the one who'll come back again, the one who died as a ransom for sinners. Let the world laugh at it and mock it and jeer at it. There is no other foundation. It is God's way. And it is therefore the only way. My dear friend, are you afraid of life? Are you afraid of the morrow and of the future? Are you afraid to die? Are you defeated by sin and by the evil one? There is only one answer to it all. It is this salvation of God that is offered through his only begotten Son. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, manifested his glory in his miracles, crucified under Pontius Pilate, his soul made an offering for sin, risen in the body triumphantly from the grave, ascended unto heaven, seated at the right hand of God, waiting until his enemies be made his footstool, coming back again to judge and to reign, and to hand a perfect kingdom to God, his eternal Father. Let men say what they will. Whatever their office, whether they be priests or prophets, bishops, clergy, preachers, professors, let them call themselves what they will. Here and here alone is God's truth. You reject it at the peril of your soul. You believe it, and you will find salvation and a hope of glory that can never fade away. Amen.